this neighborhood. Uh, and God, now we do um, come and just ask that you would be with us as we continue in our series in 1 Corinthians, uh, as we get into, uh, yeah, just a lot of good material, but also a lot of tough uh, material too, God, that we would not be uh, shy or ashamed of your word, but that we would proclaim it and preach it boldly uh, for the sake of your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, if you can turn with me now to 1 Corinthians, First um, Corinthians chapter 6, we'll be kind of going over the first part of 1 Corinthians 6. Uh, as a reminder, we're going through, again, as I prayed, the series through 1 Corinthians, which is uh, a letter that the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Corinth, which is a diverse global city in the Roman um, kind of empire during that time. And every Sunday, uh, I've been beginning this sermon series with this question. How does the church follow Jesus in a world that doesn't follow Jesus? Um, And we've seen that this involves uh, for us as Christ followers that we are called to live a Christ-centered way of life where where we don't rely on our own human strength, our human wisdom, our human tactics, but we rely on God's ways and His wisdom. And as we enter chapter 6, we get to an interesting theme, um, which is this theme of lawsuits. Yeah, you heard me right. Lawsuits, okay? Uh, Paul, in this part of this letter, is addressing situations where church members are literally suing other church members by taking them to court. And so um, for today, uh, this has relevance to us, okay? Just don't just check out right now, okay? It has relevance to us. I have a simple outline I just want us to follow, a simple outline. Um, It's up here. Uh, It's the problem, uh, the principle, and then the promise. Uh, Us pastors love alliterations for for kind of these things. And so uh, the problem, principle, and promise. And so I'm just going to go through it one by one, walking through this uh, part of Scripture. And I'm going to kind of read the text as I go throughout these three points here, okay? So the problem. What's the problem here, okay? Verse 1. Paul writes, chapter 6, if you can look with me, he says, When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? From just that first verse, Paul is asking this shocking rhetorical question to the Corinthians. He's saying in the in, in the actual original Greek or the original language um, that like, Does he dare? It's actually at the front end of that verse. Basically, he's saying, how dare any one of you have a legal grievance against another? And when he says later in that verse, go to law, that's kind of a more official legal term where it literally is judging a person by taking someone to a city's governing system or authority. So these individuals are taking people who are in the church, outside the church, by having unrighteous people are those that don't have the same ways, our values, our beliefs than the saints to judge them for some conflict that is going on in the church. So what's the big deal? Why is this a problem for Paul? Well, um, the church was essentially airing their dirty laundry in the public. You see, Rome was the empire in this time, and often they would allow certain religious groups like Christians or, or, Jewish, or, or Jews to handle their disputes internally, internally, because the Roman court system was not like our court systems. It wasn't happening behind closed doors. But for most of their cases, 
their um, civil cases, they were actually in the open. They didn't have theater districts back then, but they had these courtrooms that basically operated like Judge Judy happening in public. Okay, this that's kind of what their uh, entertainment was, or part of their entertainment was during that time. So basically, you're seeing church members taking other church members and making a fool of themselves in these public courts because of these disputes that they were having. So that's why Paul was just besides himself. He just couldn't understand why these followers of Jesus, who were supposed to be in this loving community, would go to these courts who did not believe in God or his ways to settle their disputes. He's saying, are you saying that God's laws and his ways and the spirit that's in you are not able to handle these simple disputes? You know, it's, it's like if my two sons, now I have three boys, but two sons that are very close in age, Matthias and Josiah, it's like if they got into an argument over a toy, which if you haven't seen them, they get into that argument quite often in the household. Even though there are thousands of other toys on the side, they fight over one and it's a different one every single day. And so they're fighting and they're arguing. And so instead of being good kids and coming to their dad or to their mom to help settle this dispute, imagine if they were to like go outside of our household, outside of our family, and ask another kid whose toy this belongs to. It just seems foolish to you. Why would they go outside of the household? But then also, why would they go to other kids and not like a responsible adult who would handle this wisely? And so it's, it's kind of like that same way where basically when they were going outside of that house, it's basically saying in a kind of inadvertent way that Matthias's and Josiah's dad and mom can't handle the problem. So we have to go outside to figure it out. It sounds ridiculous, right? No one would do that. It just sounds ridiculous. It's, children would do that, right? So that's why for Paul, he's saying, why are you being this ridiculous? But for us... Do we do this? Do we relate to this situation? Mm-hmm. Now, um, I think it's interesting. I think even at taking a more macro level of our country, um, for example, do you know how many lawsuits? Now, I looked this up, so I, I'm pretty sure this is right. Multiple sources. Do you know how many lawsuits are filed every year in America? I know there's one lawyer in here, but um, any uh, but anyone know how many lawsuits are in America every year. Just guess. Just give me ballpark, okay? This is interactive here, okay? A million. A million. A lot. That's very ambiguous. Okay. <laughs> two million. Two million. No, it's way higher than that. I'm going to say two hundred million. Two hundred? That's a little too much. <laughs> two hundred million. Uh, it's, it's around 40. 40 million, okay? 40 million a year, which is a lot. It's more than any other country in the world, okay? Just the FYI. Um, and it's, it's not surprising because you just drive down like I-55 or I-290 and you just see like majority of the billboards there are lawyers trying to tell you that you need to sue others for accidents, medical treatments, business practices, and many other things. Now, there's about, uh, there's about 70% of the lawyers in the world do also reside in the U.S. Um, and the question is, why is there such a saturation here in the U.S.? Now, I think it's now it's probably one of the reasons, but I think one of the reasons is that in the U.S., we have a strong belief in my rights, in my 
property and my, you fill in the blank. And so whenever someone imposes or does wrong to it, we want to fight a little bit against that. We have this um, aggressive, maybe, entitlement into what we have is ours. So whenever people defraud us, mistreat us, or do wrong to us, um, we sue people really for everything and anything. Um, and the things that you can sue people for uh, is just a laundry list that's way too long. Uh, and I think for us as a culture, now I know for you individually, you might not say like, that's not me. I don't do that. I don't, I've never sued someone before. True, true. I, I don't think most of us probably have sued anybody before. But then the question that I think this text asks us is how many of you have taken someone to court and judged them in your heart before? How many of you have said, how dare they treat me that way? Or how dare they not pay me back? Or how dare they not offer to help me when they have this or that or can do this or can do that? Or how dare they say that to me? If we were honest with ourselves, we've taken many people to court in our own hearts. We've even said in our hearts, if others knew what this person said or didn't do or did incorrectly, they surely would be ashamed of themselves. In those moments, we have committed the same sin the Corinthians have. We've become so proud and self-righteous and held our rights and our reputation higher than the rights and the reputation of others. In those moments, we have done the same. And so at a deeper level, we would rather be right and justified than to love our other brothers and sisters in the church. And in 1 John 4, 2021, it reminds us, and I showed up here on the screen, if anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother or sister, he is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother or sister whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command, whoever loves God must also love his brother or sister. So the deeper problem here is a lack of brotherly and sisterly love. So then what's the principle? Or another way, what is the solution to our um, problem here? Let's continue reading on. I'm going to read the book over here now, verses 2 to 8. Look with me, chapter 6, verse 2 to 8. Paul writes, Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to, trial, to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to, to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Now, there's a lot here. Um, most of it includes about eight to nine rhetorical questions that Paul asked the Corinthians. That's kind of how upset he is. But let's just start with verse two and three, where Paul compares how the saints who are to judge the world and judge angels. Okay, a little, a lot of theology there, but we're to judge angels, we're to judge the world. Paul, Paul is using this traditional rabbinic teaching method where he is referring to this time when 
it's actually in Revelation, Revelation 20 to be specific, where Jesus Christ, when he returns and his reign is final here on earth, Christ will judge everyone. But the saints, which includes all Christians, will also be judging alongside Christ. Not that we will give the ultimate judgment, but that we will be judging alongside Christ when he will judge every single person who has been existent in this world. So Paul is then saying like, hello now, you're going to be judging the world. You're going to be even judging angels. And that's also in Revelations 20. And so then he's saying, how can you who can eventually judge the greater not judge these simple, trivial cases that are coming amongst in the church? Now, I want to focus on that word trivial. It's really important here because uh, that word trivial, it can be translated as insignificant or small matters. But the reason Paul writes that word is because the matters that he's talking about in the church are trivial. They're not cases of like murder or like heresy or abuse or serious injustice here. In other words, these were not criminal cases. These were often civil cases. Now, criminal cases, very much so, these should be reported to proper authority figures. But for civil cases where people might have breached the contract of a small business deal, or there's like property damage, or there's reputation that's been hurt, or there's something he shed, she shed kind of thing. I mean, a lot of those things could be happening. Uh, but one of the interesting things is that historians, they actually think that the issue that was going on in the Corinthian church was that there were these wealthy business owners. And so they had hired these kind of more working class people within the church, okay, doing business in the church. And something has probably gone wrong. And so what the wealthier business owners are doing is they're actually taking these working lower class people to court because they know they have the advantage in those courts, And so it would actually make a lot of sense why Paul was infuriated at the church because these wealthier business owners are doing injustices to the working class and and lower class individuals in the church. And so I I bring this up to you all because um, this passage, if you're not familiar, has often been misused in the church. Because many times people would use this passage to cover up cases of sexual abuse, financial abuse, power abuse happening directly in the church. Sadly, they've used this because they want to protect the church. They want to make sure that nothing gets out. So they kind of recommend people to forgive and to forget and to kind of keep these houses, these things in house. Now, Paul is not talking about those things. That's, I want to be very clear here. Paul is not saying that we need to keep these um, atrocious things happening in the church quietly in the church. What he's saying is that if there's like some civil dispute going on, yeah, like figure it out yourself. God has given you wisdom. God has given you the spirit of wisdom to help you figure these things out. But for situations like this that are, crim- not like this, but where other situations where we've seen sadly in social media or the news, Paul is saying, do not, those cases need to be made public. Those cases need to be brought to the proper governing authorities because what Paul is truly advocating for is not the reputation of the lowercase c church, like a local church, like Park Community Church or First Baptist Church Chicago or something like that. What Paul is concerned about is the reputation of God and his church, capital C church, that 
for these trivial things, they don't matter. They, they need to be figured out. But for other reasons, you need to show those things outside the church and have third-party investigations or other things that need to reveal those uh, those sins that come to light. And so I, I kind of take that tangent here because um, I don't know your experiences. I don't know if you've heard this passage um, brought up in a way that is meant to like keep everything in-house in the church. That's not what this passage is saying. What this passage is saying is that you need to expose injustices. But for many disputes that are going on that are trivial in the church, the church should be able to handle that. Um, and if you have questions about that, please do let me know because that, that is a, a very serious topic that um, continues to um, be very, very relevant within the church and the Christian community, actually in the broader community today. Um, but let me go back to the verse here. Let me go back to the verse. Um, what is the principle that Paul is addressing here? In verse 5, um, he says, To settle the dispute amongst yourselves with the wisdom God has given to you. That's basically what he's saying. You have wisdom that God has given to you. Um, in chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians, and kind of going backwards, Paul, he wrote this already to them. He says in verse 12 of chapter 2, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Verse 16, it says, For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Now, Paul is saying, God has given you a wisdom that is not of this world. It's better than the world. So through the Spirit, you have the mind of Christ. How in the world could you not figure out these trivial disputes that are going on amongst you? And then he takes it even one step further in verse 7 to 8. He says, instead of fighting or proving that you are right, why not suffer wrong on behalf of the other? Why not be defrauded on behalf of the other? In other words, he's saying, why not take it for the team? Now, if you remember Jesus' words, this principle of turning the other cheek is exactly what Paul is talking about here. In Matthew 5, verse uh, Matthew 5, uh, verse 38 to 40, very well-known verse. He says, You have heard that it was said, Eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn, them, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. Now, even Peter asked this question later on in Matthew. In Matthew 18, Peter asked him, Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother or sister? He, does he say seven times? No. Jesus says in Matthew 18, verse 22, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times, which is another way to say to do it without any limit. Now, I bet some of you are asking, like, wait, wait, wait a minute. Are you basically saying that the principle here is that if someone mistreats me or defrauds me or does wrong to me, that I'm supposed to forgive them and accept it? That I'm supposed to turn the other cheek? Yes, that's exactly what Paul is saying. Because in the entirety of the letter, the main theme of this letter to the church of Corinth is that you must live in the way of the cross and not in the way of the world. 
And if you remember the cross here, the way of the cross is demonstrated by Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, who did not mistreat us, who did not harm us, who did no injustice to us, but instead it was us who mistreated him, who did not listen to him, who shamed him every single time where we did not listen to his way or word. And even on that cross, Humanity cursed them because we chose to live in our own way. We worshipped our own, our own sin and our own idols in our pride and self-righteousness rather than worshipping and following God. And even then, Christ did not retaliate. He did not push us back or, or hit us back. But as Isaiah 53 just well puts it said, He was oppressed. He was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus took on our sin, our shame, even our death on the cross, a death that we deserve so that by his death we would now have life in him. And the very essence, the very foundation of the gospel is a story of a just God given injustice on our behalf. So then out of this beautiful act that Christ has done for us, when people mistreat us, when they um, defraud us, when they hurt us maybe in ways that we did not want to be treated, we our, our gut reaction may be to take revenge on them or to get back at them. Now, I'm not saying that we confront mistreatment or defraudment. I'm not saying that we don't like say anything at all. I'm saying that we definitely do confront those things. But our initial posture should be to forgive and to allow them love and grace rather than trying to fight back for what is ours. That should be our posture because that is the posture that Christ has exemplified for us. Now, um, I don't. I know for me, it's it's. This is. I don't think for any of us, this is an easy chapter or a passage to preach on or even to share on. Um, you know, even for myself, I remember like uh, about ten years ago, I was doing youth ministry at a small Korean church, and I had the privilege of kind of um, helping this youth ministry out for a little bit. Uh, about six to eight kids, really small church. I was doing it while I was in college, and um, you know, they're you know, I, I love these kids. I, I love these kids so much that I would like pour my my time and energy to them, and other days I would like not want to spend a single moment with them. Like that's how much I love these kids. They, that's they, they were very much like my own uh, like younger brothers and sisters. And so you know we were a small church, and so as doing ministry and pouring into them, there's a reality that a lot of them were were kind of trying to figure out their own faith. And uh, for them, they uh, I really realized that they needed a stronger kind of Christian like youth community. And so I suggested to them, hey. Like, I know we're really small here, so why don't you actually go to the neighboring church? They have a really awesome, like, youth program on Fridays. Like, how about you go there instead uh, on Fridays instead of coming here on Friday nights? And so I suggested that to them, and they went, and they were really blessed by that experience. But what happened was the, the pastor's wife found out about that, and she was not happy at all. Um, and one Friday, she came up to me, and she just flat out yelled at me for doing that. She yelled at me saying, like, why would you send these youth to a different church? They belong to this church. Um, you have to, like, pour into these kids. Like, don't send them off. Like, don't be lazy. And it was, it was I was a college student during that time, and I, I kind of acted like one too, where I very much was not taking it. I kind of, like, rebuttaled back. Um, and I remember it was actually in front of some youth kids too, and it was a really 
uh, embarrassing experience for me at that moment. I remember leaving church on that Friday night just so angry. Um, and in ways, too, where I was so angry, I was like, in my mind, I had this, like, imaginary courtroom where I was, um, like, I was, uh, where God was the judge, and uh, the, the pastor's wife was there, and I was saying, like, this pastor's wife is not, you know, I, I'm, I'm considering the, the youth kids. I'm considering their faith, their discipleship. Like, why is she shaming me? Like, she should, she's doing wrong to me. I want wrong to be done to her as well. And so I, I was fuming for weeks. I avoided her every single week on Sunday. I, I avoided her. Um, and then about three weeks later, she came up to me and she surprisingly apologized to me, which was um, beyond what I thought. And she told me, like, you know, I should have yelled at you. Um, I know you care about these youth students. Uh, I care about them, too. I just was really upset that they were going to a different church. And so um, she said sorry. And at that moment, I didn't want to accept that apology. I, I didn't want to accept it. I, I wanted to be right. I wanted to hold my anger. I wanted to not to forgive that uh, pastor's wife. And I look back, and it, it took me a long time to forgive her, like about like, a few months um, and, and, I sh- and I share this story because um, that was one moment where it was really hard to forgive someone that mistreated me. Um, and I wanted to ask you all, is, is there someone that has mistreated you or wronged you that you still feel bitterness or resentment in your heart? Um, it might, I mean, it might be someone in this church for a young church, you know, it might be, or it might be somebody from a different church or from a different congregation or a different time. Uh, let me tell you, as much as you want to pay back to that person, it is much more freeing to forgive in the long run. And because um, if God had done the same thing to us, if God had been resentful or bitter and done justice on us, we would have been punished by death and by death alone. Only by His kindness and His grace and His forgiveness by even him offering his own body as a sacrifice, he says to us, I forgive you. So no matter what you have done against me, God is saying, you are forgiven. So in that same way, as we hear in the Lord's Prayer, we ask, as we have been forgiven, help us also to forgive others as well. And that is the principle that Paul is referring to here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Which leads me to my third section. What is the promise? Like, how is there a promise in this chapter? Let me just read um, part A of verse 9. It says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? That is the last rhetorical question Paul asked. And he asked that question because if you notice, he says the unrighteous, literally meaning wrongdoer, They will not inherit the kingdom of God. But for you, if you are the righteous, you will inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, Paul is saying, for those that wrong you, that mistreat you, and that are unrepentant and not saying sorry, not asking for an apology or um, not not asking for you to forgive them, for those that are the unrighteous, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. But for you, for those who choose to forgive and to love and do kindness, your promise is that you will inherit the kingdom of God later on. 
We have to remember here, in Romans 12, 19, Paul writes this too in a letter to the, to the Romans, that, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Jesus promises for those who hurt you, mistreat you, do wrong to you, vengeance will be his. That is not our authority, our responsibility. But for us, our call is to be righteous, to be merciful, to take on even the mistreatment of others and to forgive them because Jesus promises each one of us that we will inherit the kingdom of God where all things will be made new and good. That our future inheritance is a place and a time of eternity where we will experience all of God's goodness, His gifts, and His glory to the end of the days. No, there will be no end of the days. And we will live with God in eternity and experience the greatest gift of all time. This is important here. Paul doesn't write that, uh, the word of God doesn't even say that we are to experience injustices or mistreatment because that's what we're supposed to do. That's all you get. Just because that's the good thing to do. No, that's not what God is saying here. God is saying is that you are to endure them because there is a future promise that is given to you. God doesn't say just let it go. God says look ahead. Look ahead to what is promised to you. That the promise is for those who are humble, you will be exalted. For those who forgive, you will receive the kingdom of God. Now, I, I really wrestled with how to kind of end this sermon because it's really just a, a tough word. And um, how, do, how do I like illustrate or share what this promise looks like? Um, it's a hard concept to really just picture or even explain to any normal Christian or person even. Uh, but the other day, um, I was scrolling through Spotify, and as any good pastor does, I look through new songs, like new Christian songs, but also I look through just regular songs too, because it's, you know, I, I want to make sure I'm like somewhat culturally relevant, right? And so uh, I listen to them, and um, and uh, it's it's helpful. Uh, there are a lot of good songs, not just good Christian songs, okay? Uh, I mean, did, did anyone uh, listen to the new Taylor Swift song, um, Antihero? It's, it's actually a really good song, okay? Um, that's not the song I'm talking about here, but just, you know, that's shameless plug. I don't really plug Taylor Swift often, but it's actually a really good song, Antihero. Okay, listen to it. Um, but the, the song that I heard uh, a little bit after that song was uh, a song written by this artist named Jeremy Riddle. Uh, it's a song called home um, a brand new song just three minutes long and what i want to do actually is have you listen to it um, and as you listen to it close your eyes uh, and just let the words uh, saturate your minds and heart and then after the song ends i will close our time and then after i close and pray um, esther and kevin will lead us in one final song but just uh, emily's going to play it and so uh, just close your eyes. Don't be, don't, don't be afraid. It's, it's a good song. Um, and listen as it plays.
You know, in the lyrics it says, um, the last verses, uh, hear the cloud of witness cheering us on to a place where streets are paved with gold, where there is no night or sorrow, where even death is swallowed, where God himself will make his home. Um, there is a, a deep longing for all of us to find an eternal home that Christ, that God is preparing for us. And that is the promise that we have, that there is a home um, and a place where there is no pain, nobody to wrong you, nobody to hurt you, where Father dwells in perfect glory. Um, and that's the beautiful promise of the gospel, is that though, for those who are in Jesus Christ, for those who have been forgiven by him and forgive others, your ultimate destination is your true desire, which is home. Uh, and that's why we can endure all things here on earth. That's why we can forgive even when those mistreat you. Is because the promise is much greater than any retaliation that you can give to another person. The promise that God gives you is much, much better. You know, I encourage you. That's, you know, when I first heard that song, I've heard the song like 10 times now. But when I first heard that song, that actually just like, yeah, I mean, I don't tear up often to like a song. But um, it's very not hard. To, it's hard not to tear up when you when you long for that home to get to. And so I encourage you. Um, there are a few worship songs that do that to me. And so, uh, yeah, I, I would encourage you to do that. Uh, but I want to go back and finish with the original question I ask every week, which is how does the church follow Jesus in a world that doesn't follow Jesus? Um, and it's this. It's, I think I wrote it. It's by forgiving others who mistreat you because Jesus forgave you first. That is the simple call to action. Uh, I know it looks different for everybody in this room. Um, I don't know the bitterness or the resentment that you have with people in your families or churches or Christian communities. You know, I mean, it's uh, and the thing is, is that even if you forgive others, they might not reciprocate back, you know, and that's just the hard truth. And so um, whatever it is, um, as a church, we're here for you. We want to pray for you. Um, we, yeah, we love you. And so um, if you ever need anything, please do let us know. Let me just wrap up in a word of prayer and then um, Esther will come back up and lead us in a final song. Uh, Father, we are grateful for first most that you chose to forgive us. That it wasn't just even your forgiveness that came because you chose to forgive, but you had to demonstrate it by coming and dying and resurrecting. And so, Father, we are grateful for that. And we are grateful that your resurrection promise is not that we just are forgiven sin, but that we are able to enter into your eternal dwelling and go home one day. And so, Father God, I do ask that you please help us to be those that are kind, forgiving, that will even be willing to be mistreated by others, not because we want to be mistreated, but because we want to endure and want to forgive, that we would be a forgiving community um, so that others can forgive others, even outside of our community. And so, Father God, help us, I pray. Um, you are the only one um, that can help 
uh, wicked and sinful people like us forgive others who have mistreated us. And so, Father, help us. Spirit of God, lead us on as we even go into our workplaces, um, our communities, our families that are even um, that are that are just as broken as we are. Um, that we would be demonstrations of people who forgive and love in those spaces as well. And so, God, may it be all for Your glory uh, and for our good. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Thank mm-hmm. you.